every believing Jew, every Jew who, you know, who davens for the Beit HaMikdash can be rebuilt. I want you to picture that the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt and you get over to Israel if you're not here already and you come to the Beit HaMikdash and you're going to bring a carbon. And there will be busloads and busloads of Christians excited, money in hand to purchase whatever they need and whatever restrictions they have of where they can stand and what they can touch, they're willing to do it. They can't wait to bring a carbon in the Beit HaMikdash. And you as a Jew, when you show up to the Beit HaMikdash, you are going to be vastly outnumbered on any given day because there's a whole lot more of them than there are of us. Now, I have a question for you. Does that picture bother you? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. My close friend, Rabbi Pesach Uliki, and I together founded the yeshiva, Yesodei HaTorah, over 18 years ago. Yesodei HaTorah was dedicated to skill building in reading Jewish texts and helping each student develop an independent Torah philosophy. And in 2015, the yeshiva closed down when we didn't recruit enough students to keep it going. At that point, I moved into the podcasting sphere. Pesach, in turn became deeply involved in Jewish-Christian dialogue. Now, seven and a half years later, I wouldn't be surprised if he spends more of his working day talking to Christians than to Jews, even though he lives here in Israel in Beit Shemesh. While neither of us remained in yeshiva education, perhaps his move might be seen as more radical than mine. Why does he think this work is important? What's some of the pushback he's received, and how does he answer his colleagues' objections? Is he providing a bridge that helps Christians missionize Jews? What does he say about Rav Soloveitchik's prohibiting the very dialogue that he's involved in every day? Is he violating Jewish law by speaking in churches, something he does regularly? And perhaps most crucially, what does he hope to achieve through this work? We'll get to all that and more in just a moment. First, please share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, everyone knows that podcasting is taking off and getting bigger all the time. And that means that there are two important pieces of information you have to have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all of the other podcasting options out there. So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that's of the highest quality. And we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. Rabbi Pesach Wolicki is the executive director of Or Torah Stone's Center for Jewish Christian Understanding and Cooperation. Together with Pastor Doug Reed, he hosts Shoulder to Shoulder, a popular weekly podcast that gets to the heart of issues that matter to people of faith. 
He's a regular contributor to Israel365news.com, a pro-Israel news site serving the Christian community, and travels widely, speaking to both Jewish and Christian groups about the benefits of interfaith cooperation and dialogue. Rabbi Pesach Waliki, my good friend, thank you for joining me on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Great to be here, Scott. Pesach, you're an Orthodox rabbi. You were a rabbi who was once an activist. You were a rabbi who was once a synagogue rabbi. You were a rabbi who was once a teacher. And together with me, you were once a Rosh Hashiva at Yesodei HaTorah, right near Beit Shemesh. Eleven years ago, when Yesodei HaTorah closed down, I moved into podcasting, and you made what looks to many people like a radical turn to Jewish-Christian dialogue and Jewish-Christian relations. Now, I'll point out, before I ask exactly why you did that, you weren't just an educator. I'll say you were almost obsessed with Jewish education. Like, our yeshiva was really about having a proper curriculum and about skill building and trying to really maximize the educational experience. For someone like you, who cared so much about Jewish education, and I'm sure still does, you're the same person, to then move into teaching primarily Christians, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think you spend way more time now talking to Christians than you do to Jews, at least professionally. That's an interesting path to take, and I think a lot of people are probably puzzled or curious about it. So tell me how that happened and why you chose that. It seems like a mystifying choice. Yeah, it seems like a mystifying choice to everyone. I always mention to people when they ask about the choice, I say it was surprising to everyone except my wife and the students who were closest to me. And this doesn't mean all the students in our yeshiva, but those who knew me well, and I would say a lot of them were not surprised at all by the choice, because throughout my adult life, throughout my career in the rabbinate, it's always been part of my hashkafat olam, it's always been part of my outlook on the world to pay attention to the importance of what's going on in the Christian world. I've always had Uh, a great interest in this, and I've always felt that the developments in the Christian world, specifically with regard to how things are changing with Christian attitudes towards the Jews in Israel, actually has great importance for the Jewish story and for the story as a religious Zionist, for the story of Reshit Zmechad Gulatenu and the times that we live in. So this has always been central to my hashkafa, besides all the obsession, as you call it, and it really, it still is very much an obsession, but it was during the years of the yeshiva with teaching methodology and teaching Gemara and skills and all those things. When it came to the hashkafa shmuzes in the yeshiva, I would frequently speak about the universal orientation that Judaism needs to move towards and getting away from uh, what I think of as a galut mentality where we're, where we're circling the wagons and not really paying attention to how the world sees us to the opposite orientation of really being the mamlachet kohanim, the kingdom of priests for the world, as it were, who are serving that priestly role and engaging with the world around Ol Malchut Okay, Pesach, you describe teaching within perhaps as circling the wagons, but you and I both know that there are plenty of issues that need addressing within our own larger Jewish community, and specifically within our own Orthodox community. So while it may be very important to reach out to the whole world, shouldn't that happen after we've already righted our own ship, for example? Well, we certainly need to right our own ship, but we don't choose the time and the pace of these developments. Let me explain what I mean by that. Anyone who calls himself a religious Zionist today, I mean, the very basic definition of religious Zionism, as I see it, I mean, there's a lot of different colors and stripes within religious Zionism, but just to paint with broad strokes, I would say that anyone who refers to themselves as a religious Zionist, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners fall into that category, 
would agree, I believe, on two fundamental principles, regardless if they're a somewhat left-wing leaning religious Zionist or a somewhat right-wing leaning religious Zionist. If you say halal on Yom Atzmaut, if you say if you refer to Medina Yisrael as Rishit Michad Gulatenu, if you acknowledge and believe that what we are experiencing in Israel today is the kibbutz galuyot that is the beginning of this whole process, if you believe all of that, then you have to embrace what I believe are two fundamental principles. One is that the redemption process of Am Yisrael happens gradually, rather than a flip of the switch where suddenly we wake up one morning and Mashiach came and all the shuls go flying through the sky to Israel and Chazer becomes kosher and all the other things we were told as children about the Gula. Number one, so it happens gradually. The second principle that to be a religious Zionist one has to embrace is that we must take an active role in the process of Gula. We're not passive. We don't sit back and wait for God to do all the work. Now, that being the case, the redemption of Am Yisrael, the ultimate Gula, throughout Tanakh, no matter what Sukkim you look at, no matter what Navi you look at, is not just about us. What happens when Am Yisrael comes back, and you can look in Zechariah, you can look in Yeshaya, you can look, you know, just read, you know, we say Shira Malos on Shabbos and on, and on special occasions before we bench, and we say, B'Shuv Hashem et Shivat Zion, when God brings back the exiles of the Jewish people, then it will be said among the nations, God has done great things for us. I mean, it's just one of many, many examples that the Geula, or, or going all the way to the end with Beit HaMikdash that, uh, in, in Yeshaya Nunhei, where Yeshaya famously refers to the Beit HaMikdash as the house of prayer for all nations. We know that some change in the orientation of the nations of the world towards the Jewish people is part of the redemptive process, and is part of the purpose of Am Yisrael. And therefore, side by side with the gradual process of the restoration of Am Yisrael to our land, which is what we commonly refer to when we talk about Rishit Smichat Gulatenu, it only stands to reason that there is a parallel process going on where the nations are are reorienting themselves vis-a-vis the Jewish people. And sure enough, if we look around, our, if we look around, we do see that happening. And I believe that that's what's happening in the Christian world. Critics of what you do, and not just you, but people who work in the same area that you do, will often point to the Rambam and Hilchot Avodah Zarah and note that the Rambam explicitly defines Christianity as idolatry, as Avodah Zarah. Full stop. You also told me, because you and I do talk, you also told me that people who disagree with you complain about two other aspects of your work, aside from the fact that you're engaging with idolaters, as they would say it. First, that we shouldn't really care what Christians think about us. And second of all, that Christians are primarily interested, not really in engagement in an honest way, but in converting the Jews. And they really intend to missionize us, and any other gains you get are dwarfed by that goal on their part. Now, I know that you, Pesach, perhaps paradoxically, point to a different Rambam in Hilchot Malachim to justify what you do and to answer these three questions about idolatry, about why we should care at all, and about the missionizing impulse. So this is what I'd like to do. Could you first please actually read what the Rambam says in Hilchot Malachim? And then we'll look at it after you just explain what that Rambam is and tell our listeners what it is in English. And then we'll go through each of the three questions and see how it answers it if it does. Absolutely. Uh, I'm happy to do that. So the Rambam... He says a lot of things about Christianity, and yes, it's very famous that he does refer to Christianity in multiple places as a Vodazara, but there are, it's not the only thing the Rambam says about Christianity, and of course, 
the Rambam being the Rambam, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of uh, layers to what he says. But but in Hilchos Malachim, in Hilchot Malachim, the subject at hand in this particular passage is the Rambam's talking because it's again it's the Mishnah Torah, so it's halacha. He's talking about the 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 Mashiach and how someone qualifies as Mashiach. What are the you know how do we decide who is uh, the correct Mashiach when the time comes. And in that context, he goes on, I wouldn't call it a tangent, the Rambam doesn't go on tangents, but he discusses uh, he discusses Jesus in that context as an example of a false Mashiach. Or he takes the opportunity there to explain why, why Jesus is not the Mashiach. Okay, that's the context for the piece. So the passage that we're referring to is in, is in the 11th chapter of Hilchat Malachim, Laws of Kings, if you want to look it up in English. The way it's published, it's four halachas, and I think that that's significant. And here we go. I'd actually like you to read the Rambam inside. Don't just summarize it. I think it's important that we hear the words of the Rambam, at least in English. This is an exact quote of the Rambam. Jesus the Nazarene, as well, and he's ref- because he says as well in, re- in reference to what he said before about false messiahs, who okay. imagined that he was the Messiah and was killed by the court, Daniel had prophesied regarding him, as it states, those rebellious among your own people will rise up in fulfillment of the vision, but will fail. In other words, there's a pasuk in Daniel that refers to rebellious ones who rise up to fulfill a vision, but fail. Okay, so he says that Jesus is an example of what the, the prophet Daniel was talking about in that verse. And is there a greater stumbling block than this? Back to the words of the Rambam. That all of the prophets spoke of the Messiah redeeming Israel, saving them, gathering in their dispersed, and strengthening their observance of the commandments. And this one, referring to Jesus, caused their loss by the sword, the exile of their remnant, their suppression, replacing the law, and leading most of the world astray to serve a God other than Hashem. That's halacha number one. Ramam goes on. However, the thoughts of the creator of the world, man is not capable of conceiving them. For his ways are not our ways, and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And all of these matters of Jesus the Nazarene and of the Ishmaelite who arose after him were solely in order to pave the path for the King Messiah and to prepare the world to serve Hashem together as it states, then, and this is a Pasuk from uh, Tzephania, uh, Paragimel, then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder, or Shechem Echad, one shoulder, as the Pasuk says. Third halacha, how so, says the Rambam, the entire world has now been filled with the concept of the Messiah, the concepts of the Torah, the concepts of the commandments, these matters have spread to the most distant lands and to many primitive nations. Literally, he writes, nations of uncircumcised hearts. They discuss these matters. Regarding the commandments of the Torah, some say these commandments were true, but have since been negated in our days and were not to be practiced for the future. Others say that hidden matters are meant by them and that they are not meant to be understood according to their simple meaning, but that the Messiah has already come and revealed their secrets. Fourth halacha, and when the true King Messiah will arise and will succeed and be exalted, as a direct result, 
they will all will retract and know that their ancestors bequeathed falsehood to them and that their prophets led them astray. That's the full quote. Before you go on, Pesach, I just want to ask you, you said it's important and significant that these are four halachot. Right. And I don't want to miss that point, so could you explain what you meant Good. by that? So that's a, that's a great entry point into paraphrasing the whole thing. The Rambam here really does make four points. Point number one, and I'm just going to summarize the four halachas. Anyone who was listening and you heard me read this whole long Rambam, if you spaced out, just listen to these four points. These are the four points. No one spaces out on my podcast, is, uh, Pesach. No one. <laughs> this is the four points the Rambam makes. And here we get into the heart of the matter. Point number one the Rambam makes in that first halacha is that Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah. Not only was he not the Jewish Messiah, but he was the exact opposite of a Messiah. Everything the Mashiach is supposed to accomplish, he did the exact opposite. There was less Torah observance. It was a disaster for the Jewish people, more persecution, greater exile. It was bad for Torah, bad for the Jews. Disaster. That's point number one. That's hal- that is the first halacha of these four. Second halacha begins with the word however. Now, that's a really important word. Because you're told as a reader that regardless of what the Rambam just said, he's heading in a different direction. And in this halacha, in the second halacha, he says, he starts with this, with this preamble about how Hashem's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, quoting that Pasuk in Yeshaya. And then the point he makes is that everything that has to do with Jesus, and he says, and Muhammad, and Ish- the Ishmaelite rose after him. And I just want to comment briefly on that interjected phrase there, and the Ishmaelite arose after him, that it's not our topic today, and I don't want to get into how Islam works into this. It's always on people's minds. Whenever I talk to Jews about my work, they always ask me, what about Islam? And I, I politely say, you know, I, I can't be an expert in everything, and there are people doing Islamic-Jewish relations, and how Muhammad works into the logic of this Rambam is a, is a topic for scholars to discuss. For me personally, um, it's a bit confusing what that line is doing there. There is, I'm not claiming it's the correct manuscript, but there is one manuscript of the Rambam where that line was, was, is not in there. Was it taken out or was it not originally there? But clearly the, the first paragraph was all about Jesus. And the... Muhammad is an afterthought, if you will. Is an afterthought, right. The first paragraph was all about Jesus, and that's the question the Rambam wanted to answer when he says, however, you know, like, okay, so, you know, here's, here's this, this prophecy in Daniel, it's referring to Jesus, he, he was the opposite of the Jewish Messiah, everything that came from him was a disaster for the Jewish people, however, everything about Jesus was, and here's, I'm going to read these words again, just this one phrase again, because it's so powerful. All right. He says, we're solely in order to pave the path for the King Messiah and to repair the entire world to serve Hashem together. In other words, the Rambam is saying quite clearly, his words, not mine, that the sole purpose in the plans of God that are beyond human intellect, the sole purpose of bringing Jesus into this world and the success of Jesus and all that came after him in creating this religion, the purpose of Christianity is to prepare the world for the ultimate coming of the Mashiach, which which almost doesn't seem to fit with the first statement. If I told you in the first, if I told you that there's a Jewish thinker who, in two consecutive statements, said a Jesus was a an, an unmitigated an disaster. unmitigated disaster who led the world astray and caused you know terrible hardship for the and Jewish did the people. opposite of what the Messiah is supposed and to do. And number two, number two, the sole purpose 
his, his sole purpose of Jesus and all that followed him was to prepare the world for the coming of the Mashiach and get everything ready for that. I mean, it just seems like two contradictory yeah. statements. It is very strange. The third statement, thankfully, the third halacha, the Rambam then explains. Because that, that halacha begins with the words, Ketzad, how so? Okay, so how does this work? How does this person who was not the Jewish Messiah, who, who did all these terrible things, and at the same time I'm saying that he's paving the path for the coming of the Mashiach? So the Rambam says, this is how it works. Because of Jesus and all those who followed him, the whole world knows about the Torah. They know about, he says, the commandments and all the things in the, and these matters in the Torah. But let's expand that a little bit. It means that the whole world, a massive percentage of the world, knows about Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. They know about Moshe Rabbeinu. They know about the Ten Commandments. They know about the six days of creation. They know about all the Nevi'im. They know what, they know all these things. Now, the Rambam adds in, they know them in a messed up way from a Jewish perspective, right? They, some of them say that the, that the, the mitzvot were once in force, but now they have been negated, and that's a Christian doctrine that after Jesus, the, the, you know, the law is no longer binding. Others say that hidden matters are meant by them, and they are not meant to be understood according to their simple meaning. That's another uh, strain of, uh, of thought in biblical understanding that runs through Christian scholarship. That you know to interpret the laws as as symbolic and as teaching us uh, lessons. Either way, these are both incorrect according to Jewish thinking. So that's how it works. In other words, how does the whole world get prepared for Mashiach coming by Christianity? And this is really the key to the whole thing. When I when you introduced this and said that I've told you that this Rambam is very important to me, here the Rambam is saying that the spread of knowledge of the Bible, the spread of knowledge of the God of Israel, the spread of knowledge of the content of the Torah, even in a corrupted way, to the four corners of the earth and to all these different nations all over the world, is an essential component of paving the path for the ultimate coming of the Messiah. And that's the real purpose for the Rambam. That's the purpose of Christianity in this world. The fourth halacha, the Rambam then wraps things up, and he says, okay, when the Mashiach eventually comes, as a result of that, all the errors in their understanding are going to get corrected. All right. There's a lot there. And by the way, as listeners probably guessed, I knew in advance you were going to have that Rambam open in front of you. And the reason that I wanted you to read that entire Rambam was simply because I know that some people would say, oh, he just paraphrased it. That's not what Rambam really says. I wanted them to hear it in the original to know they weren't playing any tricks on them. These are the words of the Rambam. But Pesach, I've got a couple questions to ask you based on that. Then we can continue. I guess this relates back to that religious Zionism question. If you look at the Rambam and stay with the Rambam, the Rambam says that the goal of... Christian messianism, so to speak, is to prepare them for when the Mashiach comes, and then they'll understand the error of their ways. They'll understand that there is, they already know there's a concept of Mashiach, they already understand concepts in Torah Judaism, but once Mashiach comes, then they'll understand what they really mean rather than their warped understanding right now. So what role do you have? Because if we're waiting for Mashiach to come, once Mashiach comes, he will correct them. So why does Pesach Waliki have to preempt the Messiah? The question is really, why are you trying to do this before Mashiach comes? The Rambam, if we're going to use the Rambam as a source, the Rambam says that this will all flip once Mashiach comes. Why do it now, then? Wonderful. It's a great question, Scott. 
it's similar to a question that a religious non-Zionist, what we might call a Haredi uh, person who doesn't, you know, who doesn't adhere to the beliefs of uh, religious Zionism, who doesn't believe that what we're experiencing to now is the beginning of the redemption, might say to a religious Zionist, hey, look, I see in all the Sfarim that when Mashiach comes, we're all going to get brought back to Israel. What do you have to go now and fight for it? It's really the same thing. When we speak about, and when we, when we read in books about things that will happen when Mashiach comes, oh, all of Am Yisrael is going to come back to Israel. Oh, the Beit HaMikdash is going to be rebuilt. We know that in reality what that means is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who's the master of history, will bring about situations that facilitate us doing it, but it still requires human agency and it's still a gradual process. These processes are underway. And if we were just simply to, you know, if the redemption, and I've heard from people about this, Rambam, they say, well, exactly what you said. We don't have to do anything. Let's just sit back. Let's do what we're supposed to do Jewishly. And when God decides to flip the switch and make and, and reveal the truth to these people, he'll take care of it. We don't have to get involved in that. Well, if God was going to just at some point flip a switch and make them all believe the right thing, then why bother having the paving of the path for the coming of the Messiah that the Rambam talks about by spreading knowledge of the Bible? Let them all believe who knows what, ancient uh, Near Eastern, uh, you know, Mesopotamian paganism until the end, and then flip the switch and teach them the truth. This gradual process, which requires human agency, is the way God does things. And we have to recognize that, again, the redemptive process is not only about the Jewish people, it's about the entire world. Now, Scott, I want to focus on one other key analysis of this Rambam. All right. And really, I think it's so important to understanding it. And really, many years ago, when I first read this Rambam, and it it really changed my life, and I'll tell you a little bit of a personal anecdote, it was the timing of my reading it. You mentioned that I was an activist before I was a rabbi. Uh, You know, in college, I spent more time doing uh, political activism than going to class. And then I worked, uh, I worked for uh, Rabbi Avi Weiss, uh, doing, you know, some pretty uh, interesting political activism in the early 90s. Uh, but maybe some of your listeners remember things like Rabbi Weiss going to Auschwitz to protest uh, the church uh, on the grounds of Auschwitz. I was part of that and some other things. Um, and I'm happy to tell stories some other time. But during the course of my activism, I, I was very involved with the, uh, with the cause of the missing Israeli soldiers. I was the executive director of the International Coalition of Missing Israeli Soldiers for a while, and I worked with the families of the MIAs. And during that time in Jerusalem, where our office was, we were approached by some Christian Zionist organizations that were operating in Jerusalem. And this is the early 90s. Christian Zionism was a much smaller, more marginal movement, and there was almost no interaction at all between Jews and this nascent Christian Zionist movement. It's not like today where there's a lot of cross-pollination and a lot of cooperation. And when I was exposed to them, and I started seeing, and I started making relationships with them, and I was very, I was very kind of uh, wary of them, and I was told to be wary of them. But as I got to know these people, I said to myself, okay, either they're the best actors in the world, or they're really sincere. At the same time, I was learning a few hours a day in Kolel, and then shortly thereafter, I left that job and started learning full-time, learning for Smicha. Do you remember who your Chavrusa was? <laughs> and you and I were learning together. But it was, it was right around that time, and I was, doing, I was thinking a lot about Christians, because it was so 
weird and so off the radar. And I was exposed to things like nowadays, even Jews who are against my work are very much aware of all of this stuff going on in the Christian world and this interest in Judaism and this pro-Israel stuff and, you know, scenes of thousands of Christians waving Israeli flags, singing singing uh, Hava Nagila or something are not strange anymore. But at the time, it was very it was very odd, you know, to be in a room full of Christians who all recite the words Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad together in Hebrew as a way of professing faith to the God of Israel before sitting down and having a security briefing about Israel's security needs, which is something I witnessed in Washington, D.C. in 1994 and was like, what just happened? So when things like this were happening then, they were really making me think. And because of the way I grew up in a rabbinic family and going to yeshivas and learning, and I learned every day, I was also looking at things through the lens of my learning and the lens of my ashkafa. And it was around that time that I was learning Rambam and I was reading Hilchos Melachim and I read that passage. And it's not in the old Vilna censored editions. It's only in, it's in the Rambam La'am edition of Mosadar of Cook. It's in the Frankel edition. It's in the newer Rambams. The corrected Rambams, 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 right. in the original Rambams. And I read that Rambam and the thought that I had when I read it was as follows. I said, wait a second. In this passage, the Rambam said things about Christianity's effect on the Jewish people. And he also said things about Christianity's effect on the world. He said things about Christianity in the past, and he said things about Christianity's effect on the future. And here's what the Rambam said. Just the same way I summed up the four points, let's sum up this. The Rambam started off by saying Christianity was an absolute, abject disaster for the Jewish people. That was point number one. Point number two was Christianity was a wonderful thing for the nations of the world and prepares the path for the coming of the Mashiach. And in the preparing of the path of the coming for the Mashiach, in his explanation of that, he says nothing about the Jewish people. He talks about preparing the path for the coming of the Mashiach in as much as the Mashiach redeems the whole world. And therefore, the people of the world, by being exposed to the Torah, even in a corrupted, even in an anti-Semitic way, throughout the centuries, at least had knowledge of it. They were aware of it. Interesting. So the Ramam is saying Christianity could be a terrible disaster for the Jewish people, and the catalyst for paving the path for the coming of the Mashiach for the nations of the world simultaneously. Two things can be true at once. Hmm. That's on the Jews versus non-Jews. But he also said things about the past. Everything negative he said about Christianity was about what happened, what was the result of it to the Jewish people, all the persecution we went through, all of the suffering we went through, all of the leading of us astray that happened. But what is its effect on the future? Its effect on the future is that it brings the nations of the world to a point where when the Mashiach comes, they're ready to hear it. That's really interesting. Now what I'd like to do is to go through the three questions that people often bug you about you know, Christianity, idolatry, et cetera, and see how the Rambam effectively has addressed them. Then I have one more question I want to ask you after that about something more on a macro level regarding the Rambam and what you just said. So the first question I'll ask is that Christianity is idolatry. The Rambam also says that. So people say, how can you be engaging all day long with idolaters? How does the Rambam answer that when it comes to Pesach Wiliki? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because the question itself is built on a premise that is incorrect. 
not the premise that Christianity is idolatry. The Rambam certainly holds its idolatry. And I'm not even going to get into the fact, you know, I'll mention it just now, but this is not the direction of my argument. There are many people in my line of work who will immediately jump to the fact that there are there are many other Rishonim who disagree with the Rambam, and that the poskim today, and it's in writing in numerous tshuvas by different poskim, view the Rambam's ruling on Christianity's Avodah as a minority opinion that we don't hold like. But let me add the caveat that that's for non-Jews. For Jews, everyone agrees that Christianity is idolatry. Oh, for sure. For Jews, it's idolatrous, for sure. But that, which is also an interesting issue, that the that what constitutes Avodah Zarah for Jews and what constitutes Avodah Zarah for non-Jews is not necessarily the same thing. But Scott, this gets us into the weeds. I, don't I just don't want, want people there. to get the wrong takeaway from this particular podcast going home and saying, oh, Jews for Jesus isn't actually idolatry no, no. when it actually is. No, no, let's, let's, let's go with the opinion. Let's accept the assertion that Christianity is idolatry. The false assumption that the question that you're asking is based on is it's based on the assumption that if Christianity is idolatry, therefore I'm not allowed to have any dealings with it or have conversations or discuss Torah topics with, with idolaters. Where is it written that one is not allowed to discuss Torah with an idolater? But, but let's be more to the more precise in the point. The Rambam himself, the same Rambam who rules that Christianity is, an, is idolatry, has a tshuva. He has a responsum in his responsa where he was asked, is it permissible to teach Torah to non-Jews? Now, there is a, a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daphnantes, which says, Misa, that a, a non-Jew is not allowed to study Torah. And the Rambam was asked this exact question. He, uh, the, the questioner quoted that Gemara and asked, if, is, that, is that still a halacha today? Today meaning in the 12th century when the question was asked. And the Rambam's answer, and I hope everyone listening is uh, sitting down, because most of the time when I quote this to Jews, they look at me like they're shocked. The Rambam's answer is that it's permissible to teach Torah to Christians, but not to Muslims. That's really interesting. That's the opposite of what most people would assume, because the Rabban would say that Correct. Islam is not a Vodazara, Christianity is. Correct. And if anyone wants to see where this tshuva is, it depends which edition of the tshuva Sarambam you have, but if you have the tshuva Sarambam uh, of Rabbi Blau's edition, you'll find it as number 149. If you have the other edition, you'll have it as tshuva Shin Samach Dalad. This is what the Rambam says. If you don't mind, I'll just quote the opening yeah, line Yeah, what's the it. logic says, of that? I want to hear Right at the beginning, he says, "Mutar lelamed hamitzvot lenotzrim upirushim lefihad upirushehem lefihadin, aval enom mutar davarzel liyishmaelim." Now in English, he says it's permissible to teach the mitzvot and their commentaries. It's it's permissible according to the law to teach it to Christians, but it, this is not permissible to the Ishmaelites, to Muslims. And then he explains his reasoning. The Rambam's reasoning is that Christians, because they uh, have no difference, this is the Rambam's language, because there is no difference in how they view the Tanakh and how we view it, in a se- meaning that it is the inerrant word of God for Orthodox Jews, it's the inerrant word of God for Christians. Therefore, if we teach them some way of looking at it, if we share with them some parish or some commentary or some lesson from those texts that they haven't heard of before, it will draw them closer to our way of thinking. But that since Muslims do not hold our text to be a sacred text, it will not 
have any productive effect on their thinking for us to share our teachings of the Torah. Because they're not working with the same basic text, in other words. Interesting. Correct. That's that's a paraphrase of the Ramam. If if for the same reasons you wanted me to quote before, you'd like me to quote this tshuva, I could read it to you. It's only a paragraph long, but that's what the Ramam says. It's permissible to teach Torah to Christians and not to Muslims. Now, that's it, again, it's, it's counterintuitive to people because the Ramam rules that Muslims are not idolaters and that Christians are. So what do we what we learn from this? If you just hold this tshuva up side by side with the Rambam's ruling that Christianity is idolatry, everything becomes very clear. That the Rambam, his ruling that Christianity is idolatry is based on the fact that the Christian Godhead is a trinity. The Rambam says that over and over again. The trinity is the problem. It's, it's a compromise on the oneness of God that, from a Jewish perspective, makes it into idolatry, and therefore it is idolatrous. Islam has no such problem, and therefore Islam is not idolatry. But the def- whether or not something is idolatry has nothing to do with whether or not it's a good idea to study Torah with the person. It's a good idea to study Torah with a person, and the Rambam doesn't just say it's permissible. He then, because in his reasoning, he talks about how there's a potential to bring Christians closer to our way. It has of a positive value. He says, and he says, even if they don't change their way of thinking when we want them to, there's nothing lost in the process. That's what the Ramam goes on to say there. What the Ramam is, is quite clearly saying is that whether or not the, the theology of the Godhead in this particular religion is or is not a Vodazara has nothing to do with whether or not it's permissible for me to be teaching them Torah. So let's move on to the next question that people asked you, which is that, why should we care what non-Jews in general and Christians in particular think about us? That's the question that you've told me people have asked you, and how does the Rambam people answer People ask that? it all the time. Why should we care what they think about us? And this, is a spe- and this is usually against the backdrop of all the centuries of persecution. Like It's not just why should we care because we don't care what anyone thinks. It's why should we care what they think about us. After all they've done to us, why should we care what they think? And the answer to that is... You know, really, you have to take a step back, take a 30,000-foot view of what are we doing here? What is Am Yisrael? And for this, just as, a, as an example, I'm going to quote Aleinu. Because Aleinu, we say it three times a day. It's one of the most famous tefillahs that we have. Aleinu L'Shabach. And it's made up of two paragraphs. The first paragraph of Aleinu is the most particularistic Judeo-centric paragraph, probably in the whole davening. It is incumbent upon us to praise God for not making us like the Goyim. Thank God we're not like them. We're not like the families of the earth. And, you know, praise the Lord that we're not like the Goyim. That's what the first paragraph says. Particularism at its finest. To its fullest extent in the tefillah. The second paragraph of Elenu is the most universalistic paragraph in the entire davening. Yakiru v'yedu kol tevel. All the, everyone who dwells on earth will recognize God. Everyone's going to bow their knee to God. And in the end, it quotes the Pasuk from Zechariah, v'hayashem l'melech al kol ha'aretz, b'yomu yashem achadosh mochad. It's all about our mission to bring knowledge of God to all the families of the earth. That's what it's about. It's the most universalistic paragraph in all the tefillah. And the two paragraphs are linked by the words Al-Kain. What Al-Kain means between those two paragraphs, that the purpose of the first paragraph is to accomplish the second paragraph. What do you mean? 
Jewish particularism is not an end in and of itself. Let's go back to how this whole story started. Avram Avinu was called by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And that gets reiterated to him over and over. And then when Am Yisrael is standing at Har Sinai, they're called by HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be a Mamlechet Kohanim. Now a Kohen is a very interesting role. A Kohen is separate from the people. There are rules that apply to him that no one else, that don't apply to anyone else. There's places he goes that no one else goes. There's places they go that he doesn't go. There's food he eats that no one else eats. He has different rules of who he gets, who he's allowed to marry and not allowed to marry, right? He's a Kohen. He's separate. But all of that separateness is in order to facilitate his actual role for the people, which is that he's supposed to be facilitating the worship of God for the Am. He's supposed to help the people in their service of God, and his life is about service of the, collect- of service of the people and inspiring them and bringing them closer to to the deity, because the word Kohen really is not just a word about the family of Aaron. It's a word that's used even for pagan priests. The pagan priest as well. His role was a ministering role. Okay, if the Jewish people are called to be a mamlechet Kohanim, if we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, or let's call it a priestly society, a priestly kingdom, who's the flock? The flock is the nations of the world. It's clear that the Jewish mission we, we sometimes use the term a light unto the nations, but you don't need that one Pasuk in Yeshaya for it. Throughout the Torah, throughout Tanakh, the purpose of the Jewish people is to be the, the center point and the playing field for God to act in history, but ultimately affecting the entire world and bringing the whole world together. I often quote the, you know, the, the Pasuk in Yeshaya, about Beiti Beit Filai Yikarei Lechol Amim, that the, the Beis HaMikdash is going to be a house of prayer for all nations, and I put it side by side with another Rambam. There's a Rambam in Hilchus Karbanos, and the Rambam is talking about the laws of sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash, and who can bring what sacrifice. And in this, it, it, it's, it's in the Hilchus Maser Karbanos, it's in the third parak and the second halacha. And the Rambam there is talking about who can bring what karban. It's not a very interesting Rambam, and it's not like the one about Jesus. It's just talking about all sorts of different karbanos, and women bring this karban, and, and, and everyone else can bring that karban. And then he gets to non-Jews and what karban they can bring. And he says that non-Jews can bring an ola self, they can bring an ola, they can't bring a karban that's not an ola. And the end of the halacha, he says that a non-Jew can bring even an ola sa'of, Af al pi shehu oved that a non-Jew can bring a sacrifice in the Beit Hamikdash, even if he is a worshipper of, of Avodazara. Now he started off at the halacha referring to them as ovdei kochavim, referring to them as star worshippers, and the Rambam specifically stresses even if they're actually idolatrous. This is not just non-Jews, but a non-Jew who's even still an idolater. Meaning there's no, there's no test before you come in and say, do you renounce idolatry? They don't have to. Right. Because they're coming to worship our God. The fact that they believe in other incorrect things also doesn't make it forbidden for them to worship the God of Israel, to worship the true God. They're hmm. still allowed to bring a carbon in the Beit HaMikdash. And the Rambam there is referring to, you know, someone who's a, a pure pagan. An ancient Mesopotamian pagan. Forget about Christianity and the whole dispute about, about to what degree it's idolatrous. Even if one of your listeners 
says to themselves, I adhere to the Rambam. Christianity is pure idolatry. There's nothing redeeming about their faith system. It's purely idolatrous. Okay, that very same Rambam says that if the Beit HaMikdash is built next week, the next busload of Christian tourists that comes through Jerusalem, they can show up at the Beit HaMikdash and they can bring Karbanot. The Rambam says that. I just hmm. read it to you. Right. So that means if you put that together with what, with Yeshaya's Nevuah, so I often say to Jewish audiences, we're davening every day that the Beit HaMikdash get rebuilt. Right? I, I can't wait. And every, every believing Jew, every Jew who, you know, who davens for the Beit HaMikdash can be rebuilt. I want you to picture that the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt and you get over to Israel if you're not here already and you come to the Beit HaMikdash and you're going to bring a carbon. And there will be busloads and busloads of Christians excited money in hand to purchase whatever they need and whatever restrictions they have of where they can stand and what they can touch, they're willing to do it. They can't wait to bring a carbon in the Beit HaMikdash. And you as a Jew, when you show up to the Beit HaMikdash, you are going to be vastly outnumbered on any given day because there's a whole lot more of them than there are of us. Now, I have a question for you. Does that picture bother you? Are you uncomfortable with the thought that as a Jew showing up to the Beit HaMikdash, you will, on a normal day, be outnumbered by non-Jews who are coming to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even though they still believe in Jesus. And if that bothers you, then you've got a problem with this Rambam, you've got a problem with Yeshaya. And this is all an answer to your question, why do we care if the, what the non-Jews think of us? You know, a lot of people look at my work and they say, oh, it's great that you're bringing more political support to Israel. And it's true. It's very nice if I'm bringing more political support to Israel, and that is a short-term goal of my work. But that's not the real reason I'm doing it. The real reason I'm doing it is that we have to open our eyes and realize that just like we say to the non-Zionists in our community, what do religious Zionists say to them? People who are, who are from people, religious, Orthodox Jews who are not Zionists, will look at the, the state and say, what are you talking about? How can there be a state this way? How can you have a state that's founded by Jews who are secular? How can you have, this isn't what we pictured when we were sitting in the base measures 300 years ago. This can't be the right thing. And we look at them and say, who are you to tell God how it's going to happen? This is, this is the Kibbutz Galiot. It doesn't have to look exactly like you pictured it. So I say to, to those people, this is the same thing. When we're saying Shira Malus, and we're, we're talking about a time when the nation of Israel is gathered into our land, and at that time, there will be multitudes among the nations who will praise God for what he's done for the Jewish people. Whether you like it or not, right now, when the nation of Israel has been gathered to our land, there are multitudes who are praising God for what he's done for the Jewish people. And you may not like it, but they believe in Jesus. They are Christians. So it may not fit with your view of how the eschatology is supposed to be, but I see no way around the fact that just as we understand that we're fulfilling prophecy by being here by the millions from all the four corners of the earth, these Christians are fulfilling prophecy too. They are those nations of the world that are praising Hashem for what he's done by ingathering the exiles of Am Yisrael. Let me throw out one thing to you. I don't know if you'll like this or not, but you know, sure. there's actually a tradition that 
Yehoshua wrote Aleinu. It's, uh, there are certain letter oh. combinations that demonstrate that, quote-unquote demonstrate that. And part of that tradition is the fact that the first three words of the second paragraph, Alkein de Kaveh, the abbreviation is Achan, who was the villain, so to speak, the person who stole the forbidden spoils. And if I wanted to take what you're saying, perhaps encourage it in the same direction, I would say, what is Achan? Because remember the way that Achan was discovered. It went down from tribe to family until the individual was noticed. That is particularism for the wrong reason, particularism for personal gain. Achan was somebody who was singled out because he wanted something for himself. He thought he could take something for himself. That's almost the opposite of Klal Yisrael's role vis-a-vis the world. Yes, we believe in particularism, the first paragraph of Elenu, but not for our own personal gain, to take the spoils of the universe. Our job in terms of particularism is expounded in the second paragraph of Elenu, which is that we're supposed to do something for everybody else rather than taking for ourselves. Just throwing that out there as a possibility. Okay, let's move on now to the third question people ask, which is, they just want to convert us to Christianity. I'm sure that many of my listeners have heard this idea. I've certainly heard it many times that many Christians believe, I don't know if it's most, all, many Christians believe that one of the prerequisites for the second coming of Jesus is for all the Jews to be in Israel so that he can come and convert the Jews en masse. So this love for the Jews, they will say, is a quote-unquote love for the Jews. This love for Israel is a supposed love for Israel. It just means that they want all of the Jews in Israel so that their vision of the future can happen the way they expect it, and on a more immediate level, so that they can convert us. What do you answer that, and how do you use this Rambam to answer that? Okay, there's a number of answers to this question uh, from a Jewish, from from my perspective. First of all, in terms of using the Rambam, um, like I said, the Rambam in that tshuva that I quoted says right out, go ahead, teach Torah to them. And again, I'm going to quote a line that I mentioned before that is so interesting in that tshuva, where the Rambam says at the end, where he says, you know, well... There's no harm in doing it, and maybe it'll be good. I'll, I'll read this sentence in its original. It says, He says, If they're told the correct explanation of the Torah, it's possible they will... Yachzuru, and it doesn't mean Yachzuru here doesn't mean return, and it means they'll retract their previous position to the correct way. And even if they don't do so, it's no stumbling block for us, as there's no difference in their scriptures from our own. Now, the Christians that the Rambam's talking about also believed uh, the same theology that you just mentioned. The Rambam saw no problem in in talking to them about the Torah. But the real answer to your question, like, what about the nefarious motives of these Christians? What about the reason? What's their, the motive for their support for Israel? Now, I have to tell you, I spend a lot of time with Christians. You mentioned it before, I spent a lot of time with them. I spent a lot of time with them now. It's, it's quite a number of years. There are communities of Christians that I'm very friendly with. There are pastors who are dear friends of mine, who I have heart-to-heart conversations with. They're among my closest friends. So to a certain extent, I just have to say, you got to trust me. A lot of people who are opposed to my work think that I'm some naive rube who's been duped by all these devious Christians because they really have this nefarious motive, and I just don't get it. I have to tell you that this motive is not the motive for Christian Zionism. There certainly are Christians who believe that. 
but they're not the ones who are actively supportive of Israel and who are interested in Jewish teachings. They're not the uh, the pastors inviting me to speak to their to their churches are not doing it out of that goal. In fact, the pastors who invite me to speak at their churches, the seminaries that invite me to speak, will often get criticized by other Christians for doing so. How can you have someone who's not a believer in Jesus speak about the Bible in your church? They'll get calls from other pastors. These Christians are interested in hearing the Jewish perspective. They're interested in Jewish teaching, and mostly their support for Israel stems from something much simpler than the eschatological strategy that you're talking about. It stems from the fact that they, for 2,000 years, were claiming that we did not have a covenant, that we were rejected by God because we rejected Jesus. And lo and behold, in 1948, the state of Israel is born, and in the decades that followed, Jews are ingathered from the four corners of the earth in massive numbers to the, to the point that only in the last couple decades we can say that the Psukim uh, in Dvarim Perik Lamid that says that we will become more numerous and more prosperous than our ancestors in the land have finally come true. They weren't true in 48, but they're true today. There's more Jews in Israel than ever before. We're more prosperous than ever before. Christians see that and they say, wow, God is fulfilling his promises. The people of Israel are still his chosen people. They still have that special relationship. The promises made to the Jews are being fulfilled. And therefore, those 2,000 years of replacement theology, of supersessionism, are wrong. And we need to reevaluate this. That's where it's coming from. And the fact that so many Jews think that there's some other nefarious motive, I get it. It makes perfect sense. Look at the history of Christianity. And if you're skeptical about everything I'm saying, here's really the bottom line answer to your question. These Christians are interested in Israel, and they're involved in Israel, and they're coming here, and they're studying Jewish teachings and going online to to websites that have Torah on them. They're involved in this stuff anyway, and it's happening en masse. Now, for us as the Orthodox Jewish community, as the religious Zionist Jewish community. What is our best course of action? Is our best course of action not to have any interaction with these people at all and just let this this involvement in Israel and Judaism just take its own course with no guidance from us whatsoever? Is that really the responsible way to behave? Is that really what HaKadosh Baruch Hu would recommend to us? Is that what the Rambam would recommend to us at a time when they're willing to listen to what we have to say in a friendly way, where they're opening their eyes and saying, okay, I'll let you come into my church and share your view of of a certain passage in Scripture. I'll let you bring Jewish scholars to my Christian seminary campus and share their way of thinking about God and about the Bible. Would the Rambam recommend to us? Is it really proper for us to say, no, 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 we're going to be hands off. We want nothing to do with these people. And let's just let their movement develop in whatever direction they take it without our engagement. Is that really the best thing for the Jewish people? Okay. I'm going to get to the church's issue in a moment. I don't want to leave that too far aside. But I have one last question on the Rambam. And it's really not about the Rambam per se. It's about you. And it's about our relationship, meaning us, the Jewish people, our relationship with the Christian world who, as you put it, is interested in a relationship with us. You quoted the Rambam, and as you paraphrase it afterwards in that first halacha, he says that Jesus was an abject disaster from the Jewish perspective. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's say that some of your pastor friends listen to this podcast. 
would you say, oh, no, that's going to undermine everything I've tried to do because now they know what I really think about Jesus? In other words, there has been a movement I've seen other people saying, no, Jesus was really, um, he was a rabbi and, of course, a, a wonderful person, just not the Messiah. I've heard Jews say that. You're saying the Rambam says, no, Jesus was, again, quoting you, an abject disaster. For the Jewish people, he absolutely was, right. How do Christians who love Jesus and who want to have a relationship with you, how do they interact with you knowing that that's what you think about the most important individual in their religion? I'll put it like that. What do you say? How would you answer that to them? Oh, I I discuss this Rambam with Christians. I have no problem sharing with them. In fact, I've shared it in churches. I've read this Rambam from the pulpit of a church on a Sunday morning. How about that? And you left without being harmed. No, there was one particular church where the pastor's wife was very upset. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's an interesting story. <laughs> and when you publicize this Rambam to them, how do Christians take it? Well, I, I always preface it, and I think it's a correct preface. I don't think there's anything disingenuous where I say, listen, I say, let's remember that we're reading a 12th century source. This is how I say it when I read it to Christians. I say, let's remember that we're reading a source from the 12th century. And what did Christianity look like to Jews in the 12th century? Let's remember who were Christian. You know, post-Puritan American evangelicals are not the Christians that the Rambam saw when he made this assessment. At that point, from, from the beginning of Christianity until that point, everything that Christianity brought to the Jewish people was destruction, persecution, terror. Looking at Christians, the exact line I always say is that if you were a Jew living in the 10th or 11th century or 12th century, Christianity would look not much different than the Gestapo. And that's just historical fact. And for them, sometimes it's hard to digest, but they have to deal with that. That's true. I say that that being the case, let's also remember that if we're going to start comparing who has more statements by their, by their theologians of a thousand years ago who, that are that speak ill of the other one's religion, and we start playing tit for tat... Uh, you have a lot worse things in Christian scholars who you revere saying things about Judaism. So that's not the point of the quote. When I quote it, I say that's not why I'm quoting it. I'm quoting it because here he's pointing out that the effect on Judaism was very negative, exactly what I said on this podcast, but that look what he did for the world. And we have to remember that the Rambam writing that in the 12th century, for the Rambam to write how terrible and what a disaster Christianity was and how awful Jesus was for the Jewish people, there's nothing radical about saying that. But there's something very radical to saying to a, a Jewish world that, has, that is kind of still in the wake of the Crusades, to say to them that the sole purpose of Jesus and all of Christianity is to pave the path, liyasher derech, is the exact words, to straighten out the path, to pave the path, to lead the whole world towards the coming of the Mashiach. For him to say that, could you imagine if you're a Jew living in the south of France, in Provence, and you read that the Rambam recently wrote that? How would you view that? It's a radical thing to say, and it shows tremendous vision by the Rambam to be able to say that right now, right now in the 12th century, this Christianity is a terrible thing, it's, it's caused us nothing but trouble. But the Rambam, because all the good that the Rambam is referring to that will eventually come from Christianity, he didn't live to see that good. 
but we're living to see it. We're seeing these changes. We're seeing this turnaround. Is it? It's not over yet. This is the beginning of a very long process. Folks, in our grandparents' generation, it hadn't even begun. That's how brand new it is. But we're certainly seeing the beginnings of this process. Okay, let's move on to something. I don't want to spend too much time on this because this could be an entire shear and this is not a shear. But I want to talk about your assertion that you speak from the pulpit of churches. Now, for many, many years, we've all learned that it is prohibited for a Jew to enter a church. Full stop, the end. I know you well enough, Pesach. I know you don't do things without halachic sanction. I know clearly you must have a reason why you do it. So is what we always learned incorrect or is it different for someone in your line of work that you found a het there, a bidyeved type of thing? How is it that you go into Christian churches if that is what you do? Okay, it's a great question. There's a couple answers to this, but the main, like if we're just like hardcore halacha, there's a tshuva by the Maharam Shik. Maharam Shik was the Talmud Muvak, the main, the main student of the Hassam Sofer, uh, and uh, one of the most uh, influential halachic authorities of the 1800s. And uh, the reason that this is such an important tshuva, besides the, the psak I'll tell you, is that there are very few uh, modern tshuvas that address questions of Christianity. We have to remember that when the codes of Jewish law that we rely on in our lives were all written, it was prior to the Reformation. And the Reformation means the beginning of Protestantism. When Protestantism begins, one of the main, uh, one of the one of the main departures from Catholicism that Protestantism represented was a rejection not only of iconography, but of the sanctity of the church itself, the church building. The concept that we have, and we share this concept with Catholicism, of kedushas makam, kedushas beis knesses, the concept that the building itself has a has a sanctity to it. And Martin Luther rejected that, and all Protestant churches to this day, from a the- in their theology, reject that concept that the church building itself has any sanctity. And so the reason that this chuv of the Maram Shik is so important is that it was asked in, a, in, in the context of an awareness of Protestantism. And very few poskim make those distinctions and acknowledge the distinctions between Protestants and Catholics. And the question that was asked to the Maram Shik was from a Jewish builder who was asked to, who was offered the contract to build a church. I'm assuming from the answer that it was a Protestant church, but the answer discusses all different types of churches. And, and the Maram Shik answers by discussing different types of churches. Now, the reason that you're not allowed to go into a church is simply put that it's a Beit Avodah Zarah. And, and that's not just a, a name of a building where people worship. It literally means a Beit Avodah Zarah, meaning a church, if it has in it an icon, which itself is worshipped. So the, the original Beit Avodah Zarah in the ancient world was literally there'd be an idol in a building, and the building is a temple that houses that idol. So the building itself, because it houses the idol, you're not allowed to gain any any protection from the from the elements from it. You're not allowed to have any hana from it. You're not allowed to go inside. There's the Avodah Zarah itself, and the building that houses an Avodah Zarah is called Tashmish de Avodah Zarah. 
Okay, it's something that serves the Avodah Zarah. Okay. And in the halacha, if you look at it, there's even a difference between the lobby of a church that doesn't have the icon in it versus the actual room itself, which it does. In other words, the only room that's technically fully a Beit Avodah Zarah, the Tashmish of Avodah Zarah, is the actual room that has the icon in it. And the Maramshik talks about, you know, Catholic churches that they have an actual, you know, uh, there's an actual icon and it's actually worshipped and it's in the room and therefore it's a, it's a Tashmish Davodah Zara. And then he talks about where you have the, the rest of the, of the property, which is Tashmish to Tashmish, which we also don't go into. And then he talks about Protestant churches. It, if you look in that, if you find the chuva, I don't have it in front of me what the citation is, uh, but if you find this tshuva in the Maramshik, in the third, in the in Gimel, in the tshuva, he then discusses Protestant churches, and he says, according to their belief, and I, I loved reading this because I was like, oh, finally, here's a posek who understands the difference in, in what they believe. Because Protestants, he says in the tshuva, that because Protestants don't ascribe any spiritual value to the building itself, they also don't have any icons. By rule, they don't have icons. And they view the building as having no sanctity whatsoever, but just as a place to save them from the elements, which is essentially correct. Their prayer can be anywhere. There's no added value to it being in that space. Un- again, unlike Beit Knesset, for Jews, there's a difference in the quality of the tefillah. Whether it's, it's better in a to Beit go to Knesset a shul than davening in a living room. Yes. They have no such concept in Protestantism. He says, therefore, while they're praying, they are engaged in the worship of let's call it Avodah Zarah according to the Rambam, okay? And he, he cites the Rambam there, and he says, while they're worshiping, their worship itself is Avodah Zarah, but when they're not worshiping, this building is not even a Tashmish of Avodah Zarah. It's, not, it's nothing. And that means you can go in. He doesn't say, therefore, you can go in, because the question wasn't going into churches. It was about it was a guy wanting to build one. Yeah. Okay, but yes. that means in practice, it sounds like you can go in, but can you go in while they're having a service? Right. So going in while they're having a service is a problem, uh, going into the room where the service is. But, you know, church services tend to be kind of loud. There's a lot of music. So I often do hear the music, and uh, I've heard a lot, of, uh, a lot of church worship music. But, uh, but I'm saying, if you hold like the Rambam, that Christianity is, is a Vodazara. So then the question is, how can you go into a church? So the answer would be that, so there's this Maram Shik. But there's another answer to this question also, which is, Obviously, people say, oh, going to a church is a problem of Maris Ayan, uh, of people seeing someone, go, a Jew with a yarmulke going to a church. That's an issue that, is, that I don't view as a problem because when I go, it's a very public event. I'm not recommending to Jews, say, oh, there's Protestant churches. Let's go, let's go on a Sunday and sit in the back and listen and, and, and see what's going on. It should be fun because that really will be a problem. In fact, there you do get into the problem of Christians going, oh, look, these Jews are showing up in church. Let's talk to them about Jesus. And I'm saying to everyone listening, don't go into churches. There's no value in it for you. Um, you know, and it, and it could send the wrong message to the Christians who are there that you're coming. They start to think, because they don't, you don't realize how little Christians know about Judaism, and they don't even realize all the time that we're not some some other sect of Christianity, they, they often start to think that we're closer in faith to them than we actually are. And if you just show up in church just you know to be there, it could actually send the wrong message. 
But that's not why I'm going in there. When I'm going in there, it's well advertised. Everyone knows why I'm there. Every person in the church knows that I'm the rabbi visiting from Israel. There's no issue of Marit Ayin. That's, that's certain. But there's another issue. Uh, a number of years ago, I was down in San Antonio, and I, and I was talking with Rabbi Aryeh Scheinberg, Zichrona Levracha. He passed away recently. Rabbi Scheinberg was a, was a great Tamil Chacham and a great, uh, a great tzaddik. Uh, he was the rabbi in San Antonio, and he was very involved in this work as well. He's famously, he's the rabbi who, who inspired uh, John Hagee to, uh, to get involved with Israel, which has led to so much. So because he's been involved in Jewish-Christian relations and these types of things, and he goes into churches, um, and frankly, on the Orthodox spectrum, he's far more right-wing than I am. And uh, I, so I was visiting with him, and I brought up this tshuva of the Maramshik. And I thought it was an interesting find and an interesting uh, tshuva, and it was valuable. And he said, ah, we don't even need that. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, look, he said, we are fighting a battle here. There are huge percentages of the Christian world that are anti-Israel. And then there's these Christians who are pro-Israel. And there's a battle going on now for how to view the Jewish people. There are theological wars being waged in the Christian world. All of these wonderful changes I've been talking to you about, Scott, the Christians who advocate for these positions are attacked in the Christian world. I'm talking both at the academic level, at the church level, the organizational level. You're saying it requires bravery on their part. It requires bravery on their part, meaning those who are arguing that supersessionism and replacement theology is incorrect and has to be reevaluated are getting a lot of pushback in the Christian world by those who are digging in. These are major battles that are being waged. And Rabbi Scheinberg said to me, he said, you don't even need this. He said, We're, he said we are fighting a war. You just go in and do what you got to do. We're fighting for the Jewish people. We're fighting for the state of Israel. That was the answer he gave me. And I was just like, I was kind of shocked because it wasn't exactly a halachic answer in the sense that of, of, the, of the sugya, the topic that we were discussing of going into churches. But as far as he was concerned for the work that we're doing, there's no problem whatsoever in what we're doing. So to summarize what you're saying, leaving aside Rabbi Scheinberg's Zatzal's opinion that is difficult to understand from a halachic perspective, but leaving that aside, you're basically saying that it's permissible for somebody like you, not someone like me, but for someone like you who's advertised as doing something specific, it's permissible not during a service, and it's permissible in a Protestant, not a Catholic or Orthodox church. Is that a good summary of what you said? That's correct. So when when I now I have been in the buildings of Catholic churches, but I but I never enter into the sanctuary where where the icons are held. You know, and there's a lot more to say on this topic. It's a very it's a complex it's a complex discussion. All right. We don't have very much time left, which is a strange way to introduce my reading a whole section from Rav Soloveitchik, but we can't go without dealing with the famous essay, Confrontation, by Rav Soloveitchik, which he wrote and published in Tradition Magazine in 1964 in direct response of the Second Vatican Council's attempt to start a Jewish-Christian dialogue. And then when this was republished in 1967, Rav Soloveitchik added an addendum. I'd like to read it. It's not. It's a couple pages long, but it's important to read. And I want to briefly hear, Pesach, how you deal with this tshuva of Rav Salvatius, which has been the standard opinion of many people in the modern Orthodox world ever since 1967 and even earlier when Rav Salvatius promulgated it. He writes, and is entitled on interfaith relationships, the Jewish religious tradition expresses itself in a fusion of universalism and singularism. On the one hand, 
Jews are vitally concerned with the problems affecting the common destiny of man. We consider ourselves members of the universal community charged with the responsibility of promoting progress in all fields, economic, social, scientific, and ethical. As such, we are opposed to a philosophy of isolationism or esotericism, which would see the Jews living in a culturally closed society. On the other hand, we are a distinctive faith community with a unique commitment, singular relationship to God, and a specific way of life. We must never confuse our role as the bearers of a particular commitment and destiny with our role as members of the family of man. In the areas of universal concern, we welcome an exchange of ideas and impressions. Communication among the various communities will greatly contribute towards mutual understanding and will enhance and deepen our knowledge of those universal aspects of man which are relevant to all of us. In the area of faith, religious law, doctrine, and ritual— Jews have throughout the ages been a community guided exclusively by distinctive concerns, ideals, and commitments. Our love of and dedication to God are personal and bespeak an intimate relationship which must not be debated with others whose relationship to God has been molded by different historical events and in different terms. Discussion will in no way enhance or hallow those emotions. We are, therefore, opposed to any public debate, dialogue, or symposium concerning the doctrinal, dogmatic, or ritual aspects of our faith vis-a-vis similar, similar in quotes, aspects of another faith community. We believe in and are committed to our maker in a specific manner, and we will not question, defend, offer apologies, analyze, or rationalize our faith in dialogues centered about these private topics, which express our personal relationship to the God of Israel. We assume that members of other faith communities will feel similarly about their individual religious commitment. We would deem it improper to enter into dialogues on such topics as Judaic monotheism and the Christian idea of Trinity, the Messianic idea in Judaism and Christianity, the Jewish attitude on Jesus, the concept of the covenant in Judaism and Christianity, the Eucharist Mass and Jewish prayer service, the Holy Ghost and prophetic inspiration, Isaiah and Christianity, the priest and the rabbi, sacrifice in the Eucharist, the church and the synagogue, their sanctity and metaphysical nature, etc. There cannot be mutual understanding concerning these topics, for Jew and Christian will employ different categories and move within incommensurate frames of reference and evaluation. When, however, we move from the private world of faith to the public world of humanitarian and cultural endeavors, communication among the various faith communities is desirable and even essential. We are ready to enter into dialogue on such topics as war and peace, poverty, freedom, man's moral values, the threat of secularism, technology and human values, civil rights, etc., which revolve about religious spiritual aspects of our civilization. Discussion within these areas will, of course, be within the framework of our religious outlooks and terminology. Jewish rabbis and Christian clergymen cannot discuss sociocultural and moral problems as sociologists, historians, or cultural ethicists in agnostic or secularist categories. As men of God, our thoughts, feelings, perceptions, and terminology bear the imprint of a religious world outlook. We define ideas in religious categories, and we express our feelings in a peculiar language, which quite often is incomprehensible to the secularist. In discussions, we apply the religious yardstick and the religious idiom. We evaluate man as the bearer of God's likeness. We define morality as an act of imitatio dei. In a word, even our dialogue at a socio-humanitarian level must inevitably be grounded in universal religious categories and values. 
However, these categories and values, even though religious in nature and biblical in origin, represent the universal and public, not the individual and private in religion. To repeat, and he concludes with this, we are ready to discuss universal religious problems. We will resist any attempt to debate our private individual commitment. And I'll just read that line again, which he said earlier, discussion will in no way enhance or hallow these emotions. Now, you are not bound by Rav Salvechik. We all have our Rebbeim. But at the same time, Rav Salvechik is the Rebbe for the good majority of people in our community. It sounds a lot like Rav Salvechik is saying that what you do is religiously invalid. How do you respond to people who say that? For starters, the, the context in which Rosolovechik said this, he said it was in 1967, it was in the wake of uh, Vatican II, 1965, which was then followed by uh, overt public efforts by the Catholic Church to begin engaging in dialogue. And that's why Rosolovechik wrote this. That was the context in which he wrote it. The engagement in dialogue and he used that word a number of times, in that context, is fundamentally different from the type of work that I do. Uh, Anyone listening to this, if you want to go on YouTube and just punch in my name, that's all you really got to do. You could find many of the talks that I have delivered in churches, and you'll see what I do. It's not a debate. It's not even what you'd call an engagement in dialogue. It might even be more shocking to people. I'm teaching Torah. And that's not what the Catholic Church was inviting rabbis in to do. And it was, Rosolovechik saw a situation where such public debates were putting Christianity and Judaism on an equal playing field, sharing different ideas. The people in the crowd would be a mix of Christians and Jews. They'd hear both sides. He didn't want, to, he didn't want that. That's not what's happening here. I would also say that Rosolovechik's public policy that he lays out there um, makes a lot of sense for a Jewish community in the exile, that it wants to make sure that the barriers that it has with the general culture are sufficient to retain the, the integrity uh, and the purity of, of Judaism. And that's not the context in which we're working. I'll, I'll refer back again to the Rambam. What would the Rambam in that tshuva when asked about teaching Torah to non-Jews where he said, you know, teaching Torah to Christians, hey, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it'll lead them to accept our way of view or our way of seeing things. That certainly uh, is not consistent with this position of Rav Soloveitchik. I don't think that Rav Soloveitchik was laying down a, a halachic position for all times and all places. I think he was referring to a specific context in the 1960s that uh, that was new and somewhat threatening to the Jewish community. You know, when I when I was a rabbi in Newport News, Virginia, back in uh, I was in my in my late twenties. I was a young rabbi in a shul of mostly people who were much older than me. But yet, uh, when I came in, I, I informed the members of my synagogue that when it came to the classes that I taught that were on Tanakh, I had every intention of advertising them to the Christian community, and I did so. I had a weekly class in Tehillim, for example, uh, that I advertised to the local community, and there was a number of Christians who became regulars at this weekly class in the shul. And at first, the members of my shul were a little bit taken aback. You're inviting Christians into the shul. And I said, listen, 
I said, first of all, if the Beit HaMikdash is supposed to be the house of prayer for all nations, then there's no reason why our shul shouldn't also have these people here. I said, second of all, if you're worried about proselytization, you're worried about influence, and this is why I bring up this story, they're on our turf. They're coming into the synagogue. I'm teaching a class. You have nothing to fear, and they're here to learn. And I think that's the key distinction here. Rav was responding to a question of dialogue. There's, uh, I don't think one can read Confrontation without also reading Ramosha Feinstein's tshuva around the same time, asked about going to meetings with, with Christian leaders where he forbids it. That was the context. That the, the, the context was being invited to public fora by Catholic scholars who wanted to explore these topics. It was not the context of, of Christians who believe every word of the Tanakh to be true. They look at the state of Israel and see that there's something biblical unfolding here, and they want to be a part of it, and they and they, it makes us look at, and it makes them, I should say, look at Jews with a new respect and a new willingness to hear what we have to say. It's a different context. It's a different reality. It, there's different goals, there, and there are different results. Okay. Last question, Pesach. Pesach Waliki, what is your ultimate goal? If everything goes the way you dream it could go, the ceiling, the best possible result of your interfaith work, what would happen? What do you see this as leading to? And I, I realize the answer is the Gula Shlema, but let's maybe take a step back before that. In terms of your personal involvement, if everything works properly, what's the path? What's the vector? Where is it going exactly in the positive scenario that you envision? My ultimate goal? My ultimate goal is, is, uh, is, to def- is first and foremost to defeat supersessionism. And when I say defeating supersessionism, uh, what I mean by that, and again, supersessionism, make, make sure everyone knows the terminology, is the doctrine of the church, and pretty much of, of almost all church denominations uh, for most of the church history. There was always dissenters. Throughout church history, there were dissenters. There's a great book by Barbara Tuckman, The Bible and the Sword, which really tracks uh, the strain within the church that uh, had a different theology uh, going back uh, a thousand years. But the dominant theology of uh, the dominant uh, faith of the Catholic Church was that the Jewish people were rejected and that the church had replaced Israel. It's, it's known as supersessionism or replacement theology. Um, and this, this theology is inherently anti-Semitic, even when it's not overtly anti-Semitic in the way it's presented. It's presented as Jesus making the concept of Jew no longer relevant and fulfilling the Bible, and now all of humanity is on equal footing. There's a there's a not-so-latent anti-Semitism, or at the very least, it lays a fertile groundwork for anti-Semitism to sprout. This, to me, has to be rooted out of Christianity for it to get to the point uh, that let's say the Rambam was talking about, where, where we, as we get closer to you know to the end, they start recognizing uh, the changes, and this, this, these are battles that are being waged. And interaction, and I'm not saying this about me because I'm me, but I represent the Jewish people. Most Christians have never had a meaningful conversation. They've never had a relationship. They've never met uh, an Orthodox rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi from Israel, someone who understands how to speak to them. When I go into a church and I speak, and I teach, 
and they're inspired by what they hear. They enjoy what they hear. It means something to them. It makes them think. They ask me questions. When I start to have those relationships, there is no way that those Christians can look at Jews through that stereotypical supersessionist lens ever again. And I see this happen all the time. You see that the relationships themselves often cause the theology to change. I'm also very involved and getting increasingly involved in the Christian academic world with uh, the leadership of seminaries that are producing the next generation of Christian pastors. And I think the most important, and I say short-term, it's short-term, it's going to be many years, but in the, in the big eschatological story, my goal, my goal is to combat supersessionism at its root, to get to where it's being taught and to get influencers in the Christian world to change the way they think about the Jewish people and about Israel, not only the, the, the people of Israel, but the land of Israel, because there's also a supersessionism of land where the land of Israel is no longer important in the purposes of God, that, that the land of Israel has been replaced by the whole world in the same way that Christianity has replaced the Jewish people. So uprooting supersessionism is my primary goal. I said that was my last question, so this is not a question. Let's put in a plug for your fantastic podcast, Shoulder to Shoulder. Thank you. Shoulder to Shoulder is a podcast that I do every week with a pastor, Pastor Doug Reed. He's a pastor of the Tabernacle Church in upstate New York, one of the most Christian Zionist churches, one of the most pro-Israel churches in all of America. And Doug Reed and I uh, do this weekly podcast. Most of the time, we bring on guests that we interview. We talk about a whole wide range of topics. Sometimes we'll touch on political topics. We'll touch on faith topics. We'll touch on social, cultural topics that relate to people of faith, Jews and Christians alike. And we bring on Jewish guests, uh, Christian guests. And, uh, and we really are engaged in a constant dialogue and relationship with bringing up and discussing issues that have resonance for Jews and Christians. Sometimes it's about the Jewish-Christian relationship, and sometimes we're just teammates fighting the same battle, and we're discussing it. So it's a, again, it's a weekly podcast. Once a week we drop, and uh, you can find it on any podcast platform. It's called, once again, Shoulder to Shoulder. I, I have a connection to that podcast, but I'll leave that for another time. But at the same time, I always enjoy listening. And I mean, let's just say that Doug Reed's one of the nicest guys in the world as well. So it's uh, that's also a benefit as well. Anyway, yeah, he, he counterbalances me a little exactly in that regard. <laughs> Between the two of you, you're an average person. Being nice. <laughs> <laughs> Pesach, as always, uh, our conversation continues. You and I are fated to spend our lives interwoven in various ways. It's always fun talking to you. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. 
just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.